My name is Richard Morellis, and I want to welcome you to the Prison Post. This is your podcast for conversations surrounding the need to reform prisons from the perspective of formerly incarcerated people, community members, and leaders in the restorative justice movement. The Prison Post will feature an episode every Wednesday with people who are in the fight to restore lives and heal communities. And we're back. Welcome to the Prison Post. My name is Richard Morellis. I'm here with my co-host, Jason Bryant. Finally back. That's right. <laughs> Look at that smile. Nobody would ever say that this guy doesn't have a beautiful smile. But today, uh, we got somebody on the show. And I mean, we've had a lot of smiles on the show. Some great ones. The Johnny Howes, the Hugos. I mean, just D. Marie's. But uh, we got somebody today who might have the best smile uh, out of all <laughs> 50-something shows. Definitely a front runner. Definitely a front runner. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we have our good friend with us, Roy Duran. Uh, welcome home, Roy. Mm. Roy Duran just came home um, after a, after serving a 15-year-to-life sentence 21 days ago. 21 mm. days ago. He's there in transitional housing. That's where you get that little uh, different uh, uh, background there. And uh, Roy is, is as authentic as they come. He's been a great friend of ours for a long time. We've been waiting for this guy to come home. So grateful to have you on the podcast with us today, Roy. Thank you for having me. It's such a blessing and an honor. Uh, I've always appreciated and loved your guys' mentorship and the way that you've modeled transformation. Mm. You guys are family. Well, we appreciate you walking it out. And uh, I mean, I just want to say before we even get started, like I think back, you know, it's been a little over a year and a half since I've been home now. And I think back to the small group we had before Ted transferred out, Richard had already paroled. And we were doing the personal leadership training, right, for our Friday night quest group. And we were getting the next round of coaches. And you were there every Friday night, just eager, eager to learn, eager to give. And I just appreciate you, man. So I'm excited to have this conversation with you and and hear a little bit about your transition since you've been home. It's great. Go ahead, Roy. That was was some phenomenal work that that we got to do together. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some of that work still has the influence like in the sense that I still hear your voices in the back of my mind. Like, and it's crazy. I I know that this is something that people talk about philosophically uh, about us never ever being separated. Mm. Uh, But in a real way, like I have you guys with me everywhere I go in the back of my mind, like coaching me up and yeah, you've left an indelible imprint on my mind and soul. Likewise, Roy. And isn't it true that, I mean, we've spent hundreds of hours in the in the coaching room and the phone lines when we're in there together. And isn't it true? I mean, how many times have we talked about some of those old voices that have haunted us? Some of those old voices that were that were negative that we can still hear today. But what a blessing it is to hear about some of those positive voices, some of those. Um, and we heard your voice, Roy. We want you to know that uh, you maybe 21 days. We didn't expect you to watch any of our prison post podcast episodes yet, but we want you to know. Uh, as you watch, you were talked about uh, several times, and Jason could have testified to that. Absolutely, absolutely. What an honor! Thank you. Yeah, we miss you, and uh, like I said, great smile. Tell us what it was like, man. Day one, twenty-one days ago, you got out. Uh, Fifteen to life sentence. Maybe at during a time when there weren't weren't lifers getting out. Um, what was it like? Who picked you up? What was that drive home like? Where are you at right now? Just free flow and we'll uh we'll, well no, I'll tell you hold on, I'll tell you the question I really want to ask. <laughs> because 
here, here's this was my experience, right? Like the night before. That's what I want to know. Okay. <laughs> the night before, how much sleep did you get, if any? And what were your thoughts about the night before you paroled? The night before, I could barely sleep. Uh, it's crazy because in one of the uh, meetings, Jay, you told me yes. that one day I would frame this. Yes, indeed. Uh, it still hasn't gotten framed, but it's in my wallet. I carry it with me everywhere I go. Uh, you know, this is the thing about prison is that it's like the current reality of prison is it's a, it's an oppressive environment. Hmm. Uh, so even when granted a suitability date, it's not for sure until the day or actually till the moment you walk outside of that gate and get into my mom's car, hmm. <laughs> whatever it is that picks you up. Right. Uh, so I was feeling some anxiety. I was feeling some stress. Um, I had some of those old voices like Richie was, Richard was talking about uh, that were fear-based. Uh, but I also had this excitement and optimism and profound joy that is hard to capture with language. Mm. Uh, so it was this dichotomy of, of feelings. It was like this mixed bag of emotions. Uh, but overall, I would just describe it as Super exciting. Um, yeah. Yeah. Did well, you go well, to jail with the fellas and eat? No, well, still COVID. Uh, everyone mm. is self-fed. So, uh, no, in fact, I came out on, on the first unlock when they do the, the PIA worker unlock. Mm -hmm. uh, so I came out with them and uh, I had I had a box full of paperwork. And, and this is uh, something that I felt conflicted about because I'm like, do I even need my legal paperwork anymore? Like, once I get out, I don't think I'll ever read this stuff again. I don't think I'll ever sure. use it again. I don't think I'll ever need it again. But this paperwork has, has been like a part of me. Like I've become attached to all of these papers, all of these documents that represent, you know, my journey through the judicial system. And uh, yeah, so I had this big box of paperwork. I say all that to say I'm carrying a heavy box. Yeah, <laughs> you still wow. had a box of papers like that? Well, hold on now. Let me be clear. Because one of like the best experiences prior to actual parole for me was almost the entire week before, right? Where I was just deciding who was going to get what. Yeah. yeah. Because, you know, when people find out like you're going home, they're on your door like, Jay, you know, what you going to do with that TV? What you going to do with that typewriter? You know, so, you know, just kind of going over my mind, my relationships with the hat I had with many people in there and like, like who would make the best use of it and, and just giving stuff away because for so many years in prison, like our experience was we had so little, at least for me that like I cherished what little I had. I mean, technically we were only supposed to have six cubic feet of property. Right. Um, so, so just being able to say, you know what, I can give this away because I'm moving on to something new in my life and I'm yeah. going to be able to create so much more for myself. There's going to be so much more opportunity. Uh, that was great. And I still paroled with one box <laughs> full of like, like little things, like you said, things I never read. 
<laughs> Look, hold on. I'm gonna show you. I'm gonna show you one of the things I rolled with. This is fun. And Roy, Jason does have that uh, red ducket uh, hanging up. I don't know if he still does, but it's- I, know, I, I have it in the closet, but I still got it. I got it framed. But look at this, Roy. You remember this? This is everything we did the training with. Yeah, there it is. So this is the whole like personal leadership cor- cornerstone manual with all the notes. <laughs> I still have it. I keep it right here next to my desk. That's one of the things I did keep. Don't ask me if I still read it. <laughs> oh, that's beautiful, though. It shows how important that the work is to you. Absolutely. You've connected. It's a psychological term that means psychologically attached to the work you do. And that's Absolutely. represented. That's beautiful. Absolutely. Who was your Sally before you, uh, before you paroled? Um, I was with Mike Menchaca. What was that I, goodbye like? Um, it was all right. Um, he, uh, he and I were sellies for a few months because I had went out to court on the 1437 stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when I came back, we were sellies for like three months. Uh, I left him the majority as Jay was talking about, you know, what we do with our stuff. I left him the majority of the stuff that I had. Uh, so one thing I noticed about Mike is that he's a very loving person, but he's really quiet. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think that, what I've noticed, not just with him, but a lot of the brothers who are still incarcerated is that uh, we typically, and I, I'm using a generalization, using we loosely, uh, typically don't get too close with other people because the fact that, you know, when we part ways, it hurts. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I mean, I had a celly, uh, Danilo Cortez, uh, who I went through like a month long depression after he left and I was just like, dang, like I was really attached to this person. Yeah. I was really attached to him. And and so I think some people don't get too close uh, because they don't want to experience the pain of loss when people leave our lives. And sometimes people, you know, go on to live uh, very busy lives in the free world. So mm-hmm. sometimes those, those uh, connections and phone calls and letters don't happen so I just say that to say that I, I I didn't experience like that sad goodbye with him. It yeah. was more like, um, you know, like here's my stuff. See you later, bro. You know? Um, mm-hmm. But one thing that I, I will say about it is that uh, he asked me for my phone number when I left. Uh, and so that meant a lot to me, you know, coming from Mike who wasn't that open and, in that way. Uh, sure. So that, that was something that was affirming, you know, that I had, uh, that we had created a relationship that he wanted to continue once I left. Uh, one, one of the, uh, one of the words that is actually a value for the crop organization and that you're going to become more familiar with, because I know, I already know we're going to get to it, but I know you're going to stay in this work, right? But you're going to become more familiar with this word. It's proximity, mm. proximity. And out here in, you know, the restorative justice, the transformational justice movement, the word proximity indicates the, the reality that people who are closest to the problem typically have the best solutions to those problems, right? But when we come to the word like proximity, like it doesn't get more proximate than having another human being live in a six by nine concrete cage with you, right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't get any closer than that, right? So I absolutely appreciate what you're sharing, Roy, about like these bonds that are connected. 
Like I think about, you know, my old cellies, his name's Cosmo. We were cellies for nine years, right? And, you know, ups and downs, you know, if, if there was program, okay, great. But, you know, on the days that you're, you're locked down and, and, and for two, three, sometimes weeks at a time, like you're sharing this small space with another human being. Um, at times it's super inconvenient, right? Like trying to use the restroom in a six by nine with another adult male. Um, but at other times it, there is some sense of comfort. Like, you know, we're in this together. We're in this, this kind of crappy situation together. So uh, I definitely appreciate that, that, that proximity that we have with another human being. Cause you don't get it out here. Like you're, you're free. So you got your own room, you know, <laughs> you know, you, you got your own bed. Uh, and, and if you're lucky enough to have a big one like me, you can sleep on one side and your wife can sleep on the other. <laughs> Jay's got that king size. <laughs> That's nice. That's nice. Roy, when you talked earlier, I still remember two and a half years ago, um, going to R and R and putting on those jeans and that belt for the first time and, and, uh, the feel of denim on my skin and then waiting in that cage for like four hours for them to finally release you and release me. And, and then driving away with my mom and wondering if look, I didn't look back, but I had the feeling like, you know, they're going to, there's going to send a car and, uh, mm. <laughs> it might come back for me. Like we made a mistake here. So, but we got far enough away, I, you know, that went away, but there is a, there is an uncanny feeling about how that was our home for a long time. And, you know, for me, 21, how long were you in and then come back to that walking out experience? Yeah. Um, I was sentenced to 15 to life. I thought that I had an opportunity to be resentenced under 1437. It turned out that that wasn't the case. So I was bouncing around like my last, uh, two years of incarceration, I think I moved more in a few months than I did the entire time I was incarcerated. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I say that to say like, there wasn't really any stability as far as environment. Um, And that type of instability is kind of, I mean, I'm not gonna say, I'll take the minimization word out of it, it's traumatic. Mm. Uh, it's traumatic. You know, uh, I went out to the county, COVID hit, uh, by the grace of God, I had, you know, came into a housing unit that had people that were willing to, to hear about the culture that we had created, uh, in CTF in Soledad. Mm. Uh, you know, whenever I left, and I know that I'm, I'm going the long way with the question, but whenever I left, uh, I had committed myself to making amends when I went back to the county jail. The last time I was in the county jail, I was politicking. I was being a violent criminal. I was, you know, orchestrating drugs uh, to be brought into the facility. I was doing all of these criminal things. And I was like, when I go back, I'm going to show them not only who I've become, but who they can become. Mm. And the possibilities, like we always talk about the unprecedented possibilities that exist in our lives. Uh, So day one, I wake up and uh, I invite guys into a conversation. I invite guys into the conversation about top five, uh, Mm. what and who's most important in our lives. And I started to facilitate conversations uh, from the success stories curriculum. And I incorporated some of the stuff that I learned about in quest. And I kind of like put all of this together 
And like I say, by the grace of God, people were willing to show up and participate. So, you know, that was phenomenal. And there was another side to it. There was another side to it. Like county jail is a, is a place full of chaos. You know, a lot of guys are fighting cases. You know, guys are fresh off the street. Guys, you know, are struggling with their addictions, unprocessed trauma, you name it. And so it, it came with a, a, a more intensified set of challenges than what I was used to experiencing. And I say this to say, like, I left CTF in the middle of a war. Right. And I went to the county jail while it was functioning normally. Mm. And it was still more chaotic in the county jail. Uh, and, you know, after COVID restrictions were released, I got sent back to Wasco and I was frustrated about that because my property was all in Soledad. And, and meanwhile, I have board coming up. I sent back to Wasco November 18th and I have board coming up February 25th. And, and I'm like, wow, uh, this is this is a difficult experience. Uh, but you guys know uh, the work that we've done. So I was able sure. to, you know, draw on the work that I had done. And, you know, I was able to rewrite my entire board packet. Uh, by the grace of God, I had people in my life, uh, life that were willing to type things up uh, mm -hmm. for me. And I had everything ready. Uh, I got transferred back to uh, CTF in, at the end of April. Uh, you know, so... As I was leaving the, the carceral system, I was leaving with some frustration right. with the system. I was leaving with some anger toward the conditions rather than the people involved right. in the system. Uh, and and that anger and frustration, as, as we know, can be transformed into something positive. Like anger isn't bad, it's an emotion. Uh, and that's some of the stuff that we talk about in these programs, you know, about how we relate to our anger, how we relate to our frustration, how I relate to my thoughts that are creating these emotions and how I channel it and how I use it and how I can be grounded in the present and breathe through my emotions and my experiences and think about alternative ways of looking at things rather than sitting there complaining, blaming, making excuses and being in this victim experience like we talk about extensively, you know, it, it, in the quest um, and in Cornerstone and Leadership for Life, uh, we can enter into this creative spirit, enter sure. the spirit where we're tapping into and harnessing uh, the potential and possibilities. Sure. Exist. Uh, so, you know, I was in and out of that, you know, uh, feeling empowered and in moments, genuinely feeling like, you know, victimized. Yeah. Uh, but I say all that to say that uh, as I was walking down the corridor with that heavy box, saying my goodbyes, I was sad. Mm. I was really sad because uh, uh, Vince Rivera came out to see me. Jojo Williams came out to see me. Uh, Mike Ramos came out to see me. Uh, Fernando Parada had just got back the day before. I wasn't able to see him, but I knew that he was still there. And, and, and Many other friends of mine, 88, Jacobs, James Jacobs, Tyler Williams, all, all of these friends of mine, I was leaving behind. Mm -hmm. And and so as I was leaving CTF, as I was embarking on this whole new journey that we call freedom, uh, I was feeling like I was grieving. Mm -hmm. I was grieving my brothers. Like, and, and even in that emotion, I was just like, okay, so that's just informing me that, you know, there's work to be done. And, and that's why I'm like 
well, one of the many reasons I'm super appreciative of the work that Crop's doing. Uh, you guys are creating opportunities, not only for guys to, to enter into that psychological freedom that's, that's a precursor to the physical freedom, uh, but you guys are providing opportunities and resources for people when they get out. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I say all that, all that to say once again that, uh, yeah, that was a mixed bag of emotions. Sure. Uh, I want to say this, like I, I had that experience too, as far as like feeling like, like I was leaving my brothers, my friends behind. But something I invite you to consider, Roy, is this, is that they're coming, right? And what you yeah. are is you are an yeah. ambassador. You're an ambassador for something new. That's because right. what we as justice involved, formerly incarcerated people do out here is paving the road for them when they come home. Yep. And it's, it's not just in the work of reentry. It's like how we live our lives. We're proving that transformation is possible. And, and that kind of leads me to a question. I, I mean, I, I hate to take you back there, but I want to go back there with you. And I want to ask you because you're, you're, you're speaking about the incredible work um, that we've done together that you did in the County jail. But what about for you? Like when did that happen? that you said to yourself, Roy, I need to start making different choices and living my life in a different way. So for me, uh, change definitely didn't come overnight. Uh, my transformation was, uh, uh, in increments. There was like transformational moments. I say moments in my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember from day one, once I see my, my face on the news, wanted for a murder. I just remember my gut turning and I'm like, my life is never going to be the same again. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then day one, once I was incarcerated in, in the Santa Barbara County jail, I remember I began to pray. Uh, I was extremely criminal, far from rehabilitated, but I began to pray. I began to ask God for a miracle that I didn't deserve to deliver me from a life sentence that at that point in my life, I think that I did deserve now, looking back from an abolitionist perspective, I don't believe that that's what I deserved. I believe that treatment and resources and help and love would have been more effective. But at that point in my life, I believed that that's what I was deserving of. Mm-hmm. And I was praying for God to deliver me from it uh, as if I could somehow manipulate God. And that's not how it worked in my life. Mm-hmm. And the amazing thing about it is that God met me where I was at. And I don't say that to say that I changed right away. That's far from the truth. But, you know, after, you know, continuing in the politics and the violence and the drugs, uh, I was convicted. I was convicted for murder, rightfully so. Uh, When I went to my sentencing hearing, that's when, uh, you know, that was the beginning stages of my process of really changing the way that I was thinking uh, I remember my grandmother screaming when they sentenced me to 15 to life. And the way that she screamed, it sounded as if she saw me get murdered. It sounded like she saw me get killed. Mm. And that, that the sound of her screaming just sent chills down my spine. And uh, I was shook. As, as I stood up, shackled, Exiting the courtroom, my, my dad was like, hey, call me when you get back, mijo. And that's the last time I ever saw my father. That was the last time I ever heard his voice. Uh, a week later, the chaplain in the county jail came and told me that my father was dead. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I remember just sitting in the cell and I had my forehead resting on the palms of my hand. And uh, I had these pictures out of my dad. And I had like, they were all like a lot of them were newspaper clippings of his obituary. I had those and other pictures. And I had uh, my pictures also, the other clippings that I had from the Santa Maria Times of my case of my of my conviction and sentencing were also out and and I was looking at the pictures of uh, the man that I had murdered mm-hmm. and he was holding one of his daughters and as I was experiencing the pain of losing my father I began to wonder what this little girl that the man I had murdered was thinking and feeling and processing mm-hmm. ever since I killed her father ever since I murdered her father and what I realized was that same pain or very similar pain that I was feeling as I was grieving my father was the same pain that I caused, not only to this little girl, but to his four children, to his siblings, to his, his uh, fiance, to everyone who loved him and cared for him, for, to everyone whose lives he touched. And, and I was feeling really uncomfortable with the results I was getting in my life. I was feeling really uncomfortable with the fact that I had caused that pain, which was similar, if not the same as the pain that I was feeling about losing my father. Right. And so, like I said, when I had my forehead resting on the palms of my hands, my thought was like, I need to do something different with my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was probably, I would say, the biggest catalyst uh, to my to my shift in thinking. Uh, you know, and like there was a series of other incremental stages and moments in my life that right. contributed to me transforming my life. So I have another question. I know Rich wants to get in there, but go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, this is great. Now, now, a lot of people who, in my experience, at least. You know, when they when they're facing a life sentence, when they come to grips with the fact that they've caused a lot of damage to their victims, to their communities, a lot of people say, "You know what? I I can't keep doing this." Mm-hmm. Right? But not everyone chooses to pay it forward, and what I mean by that is to take up the torch for transformation, of leadership, of creating programs, of facilitating sure. programs, of serving people in the community, both inside the prison and beyond you have been a champion of service so what is it inside of you that said you know what i need to i need to help other people see the light what uh, for you? so th- there's a lot to unpack with that i would say that a lot of it stemmed around my own self-worth initially like before i was incarcerated uh i was successful in criminal ways in 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 a gang mentality and these gang values that uh, I was willing to live, die, kill, and spend the rest of my life in prison for. Right. Uh, but as far as like myself and my own education, I, I didn't think I was that intelligent. I thought I was just street smart. In fact, I hadn't ever read a book from cover to cover until I was incarcerated. Mm-hmm. And, and just the beginning stages of me reading books and expanding my vocabulary, I began to expand my psychological horizons. Uh, one of the other factors that contributed to, to my transformation was uh, was me, the thought, right? Like I was thinking about the lifestyle I was living. I was like, you know, I'm an active gang member, I'm a criminal. And then I'm thinking about what I want in life. 
what my purpose in life is like as a father, as a son, as a family member and my duty to my relationship with God and myself. And, mm-hmm. and I was like, these two lifestyles are, are incompatible. And while I was in that state of recognizing that I was still paralyzed by the fear of the social consequences of what would happen if I stepped outside of that box that I had created for myself, which was virtually my entire adolescent and adult life up until that point and who I was as a gang member. So something outside of that box was a tremendously scary experience. Yeah. Who am I outside of this? Mm-hmm. And progressively taking steps outside of that box Little by little, as a participant in self-help groups, as a person who's like expanding his mind through his own education, uh, through developing relationships with people that are on a positive path, um, and looking for mentors, I, I, I believe that that was a. Those were all contributing factors to me ending up going to CTF. And when I went to CTF, I started. Uh, a group where Johnny Howe was a facilitator. And then I, I was in another group success stories where, where Richard, uh, Richard Edmond was, was the CEO and, and founder of this group. And simultaneously the universe was giving me a message that, that what I had to say was valuable. Mm. Uh, Johnny asked me to facilitate the group he was involved in. Richard Edmond asked me to facilitate success stories. And these were experiences that, went against the voices that I had in my head since I was a child. I'm not good enough. I'm not important. I don't matter. Mm. Significant. Like what these, what the feedback I was getting from these other men who I looked up to were sending me very different messages. They were, you are important. You do matter. You are significant. And so stepping into that responsibility as a facilitator, I started to, to think about how I was living my day-to-day life. And I thought, you know, it's kind of the same thing that we say in the hood. It's the same thing that we say when we're in that criminal lifestyle. Like we don't speak about it, we be about it. Mm. So I'm thinking about the stuff that I'm offering in these groups. If I'm not walking that out in my life, how much of a positive impact or how much of a detriment am I gonna be to the people that I'm here to help coach up? Right. Uh, so taking on that role in leadership was, was super significant in my transformation because I seen a bar, you know, yeah. for the Jason Bryans, for the Richard Morales's, for the Ted Gray's, for the Matt Braden's, for the mm. Richard Edmonds, for the Hugo Gonzalez's, for the Chris Johnson's, for all these people that were around me, like you guys held a, a really high bar of responsibility. Mm. And it wasn't always what you guys said to me. What was more important was how I seen you guys live your lives, what you guys modeled for me, you know, those unprecedented ways of thinking that you guys modeled, you know, creating opportunities and resources from scratch, you know, investing in other people, you know, creating opportunities for us to invest in Scion Green's education at Palmer. Sure. Like those experiences were the most transformational experiences that I've had in my entire life. Uh, well, I appreciate that. I appreciate that, Roy. And, uh, you know, I definitely don't want to downplay the fact that none of it would be possible without individuals like yourself um, who, who had a new belief of the unprecedented, a new belief of what could be done when we come together. And, you know, however cliche it may seem, it just it, it completely confounds me that people just don't get how simple it is. Like what you put out, you get back. 
Yeah. What you put out, you get back. However you want to twist it. Like you could say reaping and sowing, whatever. But what you put out into the universe, into the world, you get back. So if you put out the idea, the idea that we can do better, the idea that we can do more, the idea that we don't have to be constricted by the color of our skin or the part of a, a city we come from, right? Then you can achieve it. And the results you get from that new idea is nine times out of 10, something beautiful. So I appreciate that. Definitely. And I saw you step into your own in there as well, Roy, you became that leader. You became that servant. You immerse yourself in learning just like your old Sally, Danny, you immerse yourself in, in, um, finding out who you want to be, what you want to do. And you did it. And, 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 and you became that person. It became a natural expression of who you are and you increase your capacity as a human being, as a friend, as a coach, and you're able to have any conversation I remember having many, many conversations with you hour after hour with you. A lot of those old limiting beliefs you were just destroying left and right. And now you're free and you may, just like in there when we talked about the ceiling, the ceiling, uh, most people think it's right up here, right? Of who they can be and what they can do. And in reality, it's like a mile or or a hundred miles up or it doesn't exist, right? It doesn't exist. Yeah, it doesn't exist. So it's the same thing out here, brother. And, and, and right now, you know, your transitional house, those first six months and, and, um, you'll be learning a lot and you'll, you may experience a few different ceilings, but in that, let that old evidence come back as fresh evidence for you that you will increase your capacity. I've always told people, Roy, I mean, great personality, great smile, but a brilliant guy loves people, excellent work ethic. And you bring all that out here, Jason will tell you, I mean, it's not, they're, 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 not everybody lives their life that way. No. Not everybody lives. To, we, we used to talk about what maximum value equals what? Uh, full participation full equals participation. that part. That part. <laughs> a lot of people, they're not fully participating and they're not getting maximum value and it ain't coming back like Jay talked about from the universe. But you will. And uh, let your light shine. Be mindful of your yeses and be mindful of your no's. You, you're going to get pulled because you're a rare, a rare jewel, brother. And uh, it's good to see you free. Yeah, you were talking a little bit about fear, but I, I would say that, you know, for me, what I found was that, uh, and there's an acronym that describes the false evidence appearing real. Mm-hmm. Uh, when, when I when I examine my life in retrospect, I can see that a majority of the fears that I had never came to pass. Yet mm-hmm. I made 99% of my choices based on fear. Of course, there were other payoffs as we talk about in the work that, you know, that I was getting from the things I was doing, but yet there were fear-based yeah. uh, responses, fear-based ways of being, you know, based more on me being in my comfort zone, based more on being, you know, in my laziness, based on my own ego, wanting mm-hmm. to look good, feel good, be right and be in control. Uh, and, and that way of being is what kept me limited. It wasn't my potential. It wasn't the possibilities. It was my way of thinking. And it right. was my, you know, me limiting myself, me limiting my own perspective, me limiting sure. my own horizons and, and that hammer that we take to that glass ceiling is is something that I think the world needs to know about because I wonder how many other people are in their self-imposed prisons. And the crazy thing is when you're talking about, you know, like you were saying, the box of how it is, those those limiting beliefs of how it is, that when we're inside of that box, we think wrongly that because we maintain those borders that we're being courageous 
Mm-hmm. When in truth, the real courage comes in stepping outside of it, in challenging what's possible, what's new, and going there. Because what's comfortable, that's easy. That's easy. It's the new stuff that takes courage to do. And, you know, I think about, you, you had mentioned, you know, when you left CTF and you first went back to court, uh, that it was in the middle of a war zone, right? And there were some tough decisions that you had to make, that Richard had to make, um, uh, you know, being Hispanic uh, in, in prison during a Hispanic war. Uh, so, uh, you know, that took courage, tremendous courage, because there's real risk of danger for not going with the party line of living inside of that box, right? So I just want to tip my hat again to, to you um, for living your life in alignment with what you say is most important. Yeah, and, and at that time, not only was I coaching uh, the Quest, I was facilitating success stories. I was a LTOP and SAP mentor. And so I was playing soccer on the yard when that riot kicks off. Mm-hmm. I remember Richard was over there sitting behind the dugout with Angel. And, yeah. and the riot kicks off and everybody that looks like us mm-hmm. ran to the action. And we did it. We stood mm-hmm. our ground. We planted our flags. We stood up for what we believe in. And, and I had made a decision way before that moment. Mm-hmm. Way before that moment, I had a decision. I made a decision that I was, you know, I had caused a lot of suffering for a lifestyle that was based on foolishness. So if suffering comes as a result of the lifestyle I'm choosing to live now, the lifestyle of service, the lifestyle that's based on me adhering to the principles uh, of of you know what I believe to be God, my right. higher power. If I'm willing to suffer for this foolishness, why not be willing to suffer for something righteous? And so Absolutely. that moment, it was probably the biggest test that one of us can experience on a general population yard. Uh, and, and, and I was looking around and some of the guys that were fighting on both sides were people that I was coaching, people that I was facilitating groups with, people that I was mentoring. And I was like, I am not going to get involved in this. Like I would, yeah. I would rather suffer the consequences mm-hmm. than get involved in this riot. For me, it was more important for me to, to maintain my integrity than it was to succumb to that fear that told me what's going to happen if you don't jump. Right. And, and I'll say something about that. Right? Go ahead, Jay. I was just going to say, like, it's, it's, it's such a, it's a wild paradox because at some point in our lives, you know, whether we were, we were gangbanging, we were using drugs or just any form of criminality, the, the truth of the matter is at those times, we were willing to die for something that is bad. And we thought that was courage, right? Like I'm willing to die for something that's bad. And to make the transformation, it's like, it makes so much sense. Like, why would I not live for something good? Not saying that there won't be suffering along the way. Of course there's suffering. But why would I not choose to live for something good? And that's when I believe the real transformation happens. And you're willing to take those stuff, the, the suffering that comes with, you know, not participating in a riot or like right now, you know, I'm a, I've got two little babies and there's, I love them to death, but there's some suffering <laughs> involved, right? But I'm living for it. I'm living for what's good in my life. Amen. That's, that's an important distinction. Yeah. And, 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 and uh, in success stories, we do this exercise, where, like I had discussed earlier about, you know, what and who's most important. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and a part of our older curriculum, we, we had something called vices and virtues. Uh, but for me, it's like my family. It's my friendships, like my mm-hmm. authentic friendships. It's my future. It's my freedom. It's my faith. And, and, and I realized that I had some character defects or some 
aspects of my personality that I had invested in for so long that they became habitual that were detrimental to these top five that I live for. Hmm. So, so I also picked the corresponding list of virtues that we talk about extensively in, in the Cornerstone workshops. And the list of virtues that I picked were courage, discipline, love, wisdom, and humility. Hmm. So this is who I am. I'm not a product of my environment like I used to believe my entire childhood and adolescent life. I'm a product of my commitments. I'm a product of my choices. I'm a product of my own creation. That's right. And, and so like just that in that moment, I'm like, I get to not jump in this right. Yep. I get to experience this. I get to model courage, authentic mm -hmm. courage, not recklessness. Yeah. What comes to my mind, Roy, when you say that is uh, there's a lot of worse things in this world than suffering. <laughs> All right. Uh, if you had to give up that rather than go through some temporary suffering and um, how would you feel? And I also think about some of that suffering is perceived. Some of the fears that we had about not getting involved or perceived. I remember like most of our softball team, we had already been working on our own transformation. And like you said, I have been working in the SAP program and this program, you know, all the coaching that we were doing and we had a, a whole team and, uh, you know, with all but one person that didn't, didn't only one person took off. And then I'm back. I'm like six months to go. And I'm thinking about my mom and my sister and my grandparents, I had already been found suitable for parole. And I'm thinking, man, should I just wait? Because those fears, you know, are real. False evidence appearing real, right? I, I felt like, man, they're coming. Somebody saw that I didn't go and somebody's gonna come. So my counter move, my, my counter chess move was to go to the, to the, to the mafia member, the, the, you know, the, the boogeyman in there. And, um, you know, I thank God that, that, that Ted, Ted was willing to go with me. He was willing to walk through the fire with me. And we got an audience with them and, and, you know, those guys have entourage or, around them and, and we, and we talked to them and I told them, I just wanted you to know that I, that, that I'm not committed to that anymore. I'm committed to God, my family, my freedom. And I didn't go. And I sat down that day and, um, you know, I'm already suitable for parole. I'm going home and he already know me from groups and the visiting room and all those things. But he said, um, he said, Oh man, don't even worry about it, man. Uh, uh, you, you know, you weren't supposed to go. He goes, man, a lot of your other Christian brothers, they, they must not have had enough God in their life. Mm. <laughs> they didn't have enough God in their life because they went over there and got involved. And I don't know why they did that. So even, even from his perspective, our perspective is all Hispanics are in trouble. His perspective, which was being revealed, which most people don't ask questions about, is if you are about this lifestyle, you should go. But if you're not and you're truly living that transformed life, then what do you, what do you have to worry about? So... Anyways, that's uh, yeah, you know, on, on the flip side of that false evidence appearing real. I, I was doing that work, like I said, in the county jail with uh, Deirdre Smith. She's a programs manager down there. And, and she had uh, um, her and I had these conversations. You know, she specializes in trauma. And so we had a lot of conversations about trauma and about trauma responses. And we created uh, we co-created another acronym for fear. And it's find evidence affirming reality. Mm -hmm. So so one of the things that I've learned through a lot of these experiences, especially through the most chaotic experiences, through all the conflict, uh, was that, for one, not everything is going to work out exactly the way that I want it to. And, and I think that that's like a false expectation with hope. It's like hope for some people means like everything's going to play out exactly the way I want it to. And that's not reality. 
what I believe is true, though, is that everything happens for a reason. Although we may not be able to completely see it with our limited perspectives, if we embrace life, when I choose to look at life from this perspective, like everything's happening for a reason, what, what I find is that there's opportunities to lo- learn, grow, and as, as a result of what I learn and practice in my life, I evolve as a human being. That's right. It's all about perspective. Sometimes it's just all in the way you look at things. And even though things may not go exactly the way we wanted to, we're going to experience exactly what we need to experience and come and cross paths with, paths with the people that we cross paths with to learn the things that we need to learn and to grow in the ways that we need to grow to become the people that God has called us to be. Uh, that's, dope. And that, that's just perspective. So. Appreciate that. <laughs> I want to, I want to ask you, Roy, let's transition now. I mean, we know you've been home for 21 days. I, I got a couple questions. The first one's kind of light and easy and the next one's going to get a little deeper. But the first one I want to know is what's the first thing you ate? Um, I went to my grandma's house. Home cooked meal. And uh, she, she made me some rice and beans. Uh, that's a big tradition in our, in our family. So like one of the things my dad told me growing up, uh, he used to say, I love you more than beans and rice because it was <laughs> me and then beans and rice was right <laughs> so, Close second, huh? Yeah, it was a close second. I, I barely beat the beans and rice. I don't, okay. Uh, the same grandma who screamed? Yeah, the same grandmother. And mm. she just, by the grace of God, she just got out of the hospital uh, three days ago. She had heart surgery. Uh, mm. She was born in 1935. Oh, my so, God. She's getting up there in age, but she's still strong. I mean, she pulled through that heart surgery really well. Uh, you know, and that's one of the fears that I had. And, and it's another fear. And, and uh, that's one thing about life is that death is inevitable. Mm-hmm. It's something that is just a part of life. And I think it's just another transition in some ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was your second question, Jay? So my second question is, so you've been out for 21 days. You had your beans and rice, which is, I'm sure, amazing, <laughs> grandma. And now you're in a transitional facility. I want to know just your honest experience of what it's like to be in a transitional home as compared to prison. Uh, well, it's way better than prison. Now, that may come across as more optimistic than reality is um mm. because prisons are like let's just face it prisons are pretty low bar uh sure there are uh, cookie cutter policies blanket ways of doing things as if everybody is the same as if everybody's needs are exactly the same Will uh, you take the filter off a little bit and give us a little specific example there roy yeah so uh there's restrictions on travel there's curfews that make it very difficult to work. Um, Mm. You know, there's other petty rules like that, that make it difficult for someone who has employment that requires travel, that requires uh, work at certain times. Mm -hmm. Uh, So like, just, just to be real specific, uh, I have a, a, a weekly invitation through success stories to work at Homeboy Industries, mm-hmm. uh, which is one of the things that I've been requested to 
uh, assistant uh, and I'm unable to go. Mm-hmm. And that's not just with transitional housing. That's also with parole. So parole, sure. these institutions are disallowing me to perform my duties, uh, which make things incredibly difficult and frustrating. Um, so those are some specifics about, you know, both the transitional housing and parole. Let me ask this because, you know, I was very blessed to, you know, leave prison at a time where I wasn't accepted into transitional housing. I went straight home. So I'm curious do they provide any type of resources for like digital literacy training? Absolutely not. No, uh, we have uh, the only support we're receiving right here is a uh, CBI curriculum. It's basically like the LTOP SAP program. Uh, but outside of that, no, there's no digital digital literacy. Uh, any 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 resources for employment outside of what you are offered through your own resources? Is there any like direction for how to get a job or how to get some training, um, how to get your skills up? No, no, not at all. There's there's no f- formal program that assists us with any of those practical needs that we have, mm-hmm. uh, and that's definitely a, a need that that is it's needed for sure. Is there anything? Is there anything as far as like your pathway out of transitional housing to help you get your own permanent housing upon completion of that program? No, not that I'm aware of if there is. So, I mean, I'm asking these questions. Any financial literacy, teaching you how to do a bank account or checkbook or increase your credit score. No, there's none of that either. So the reason I'm asking these questions, Roy, is because, you know, the reality is it may be a step up from prison, but it ain't that much different. Mm -hmm. For people, for someone who just got out of prison 21 days to have no resources in how to get their money together, how to navigate a digital world. This is a digital world, right? How to get employment or how to get their own place to live. That ain't no help. Mm-hmm. No, so, no. And, and I think a part of part of the problem is, is that like you guys were talking about, it's not ran in a proximal way. Sure. Uh, and, and I think that that's what, what I'm hearing and what I'm seeing through the crop organization is that you guys have a uh, proximal leadership, proximal mentorship. You guys know the problems uh, very insightfully because you've experienced it. And so you have the solutions and now by the grace of God, you have the resources. Sure. Uh, so that's amazing. That's, and, a that's, of, you know. and a lot of people will, uh, will be victimized out there. Like, man, this program, they don't provide none of this. But I thank God that you, Roy, have the perspective and the support system around you, whether it's us or Richie Reseda or Manny Thomas or Chris Johnson or Hugo or, you know, all those guys there at Success Stories Program and beyond that, all the people that you know, you see them, you know, with a, with a bank account and a car and a house. And how did you do it? And if it, you know, had that perspective, if it's up to, if it's meant to be, it's up to me. You know, I need to go learn. That's true. That's true. It's up to me. I need to go learn. I can't rely on the system or the parole system. And it, 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 is, an, it is an embarrassment, though, that mm. here you are in a transitional house and you would think and, and we work with senators and assembly persons. And I think from their perspective, oh, wow, he got a job so quickly. That's great. But if they were to hear that you can't go to that job because of the parole system, they'd be pissed. And those are things that they don't know about. And those are those are those are little breaks and tweaks and things that need to be fixed. But we'll be the ones to advocate for those fix. 
for mm-hmm. those things, for those solutions. We, you know, and 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 we'll experience victimization by it a little bit because it's not right. It's an injustice. It's something to really be angry about where I have a job. Now I can't go to job parole. So what am I going to do now? Thank God you have the support system, but a lot of people don't. And so that's, that's some of the work that we're doing by reimagining reentry over here at crop and saying, what are the needs that the person has that's coming out after 13 years or 21 years or 30 years. And we know their housing. Like Jay said, it's a digital world. It's the information age. They're going to need that. They're going to need, um, information on their, um, on banking credit score. You know, I I tell the story, Roy, that I came out and, um, somebody had stolen my identity. And so I couldn't get a car and I couldn't get an apartment and had not my grandpa, uh, had not Mitch gray co-signed for me to be in an apartment. Uh, I'd be living out of my car. Had not my grandpa co-signed for my car. I, what would I do after six months of transitional housing, go to a bunch of different sober livings, how much debt did they did they rack up on your on your identity? Sixty nine thousand dollars, and I was able to I went and filed a police report and found the guy in Idaho and some bank that is not even in California, and I found him through Google Maps and said, "Look, there's the truck. There's the fifty eight thousand dollar truck. You know, you can go to his house. There's his address. You know, and they're quick to lock me up, but they they never they never got back to me again with the sheriff's office. And I've been paying to get those fixed over the last two years and seven months without any help. No, no help. And um, it was hard enough to get them to give me one piece of paper to prove that I was in prison for 21 years because that's what they asked. Well, how do we know it's not you? It's your name. It's your Social Security number, isn't it? Yes. But it wasn't me. Well, where were you? And so I- I just want to jump in because I think like the temptation, like what I feel right now is like, I feel victimized for you. Right. And, and I feel victimized for Roy to be in a transition, a transitional facility that's not helping him transition at all, but it's definitely both. And right. Because you said it, like you find your reason and you'll find your way. You found your reason. You found your way. Roy has his reason. He'll find his way. But that's accounting for our personal responsibility. You know, we, we committed crimes. We served our time. And now we're doing the best we can to, to make this transition into the community and be adding value as members of the community. But there's also the systemic responsibility. And that's where like the feeling of victimization comes because the way the system has it set up, they're not, they're not helping Roy Duran. They they didn't help Richard Morales. You know what I mean? So, so that's why these conversations are important because we collectively make up society. Mm -hmm. So Roy, we got five minutes left. I'm going to get in trouble with mama. If she watches this podcast, <laughs> we didn't talk about your mom. And she's been out here. She's like, I don't want to say she's mini Roy because she gave birth to Roy. <laughs> Social media with the quotes, the motivation, the recovery work. Man, uh, I, I don't know who. I mean, I'm sure it's a, some co-inspiration there, but your mom is an inspiration. And uh, I'm so so happy that she. I saw the pictures of you hugging her and your grandma. And I'm so happy that she has her son home. And what was it like? Give us the last three or four minutes of uh, what that reunion was like. So as you said, the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. Uh, Yeah, my mom, she has been, well, my mom and my grandmother, the closest that I've experienced to God as I've been on this planet in life. And what I mean is like unconditional love, unconditional support, uh, and a willingness to stand by my side, no matter what, Mm. like there's nothing that I can do that will separate me from their love. And 
that has been my saving grace throughout all of these years. You know, throughout all of the trauma I've experienced, most of which was self-inflicted, my mom was there with unconditional acceptance, unconditional love and unconditional support. Uh, and, And really that was the mirror that I needed to see my own worth. You know, that love was what was healing for me in my life. That's right. Uh, it's that love that gives me hope for the future. Uh, yeah, thank you for asking me to talk about that, too. I really appreciate that. Thank you for your connectedness and your mindfulness. Uh, it, both of you guys' mentorship has been invaluable. Uh, thank you to the Crop Organization, to Palma, to Success Stories. Uh, you know, we're, we're doing transformational work. And one of the most beautiful things that I want to say, since we're talking about family, is that we are a family. Um mm-hmm. You know, a lot of times people will get into false dichotomies like it's an either or or it's us against them, like the nature that we pull out, you know, about human nature in the red and black game. And and it's not these false dichotomies. It's not us against them. Like we get together and we collaborate on things and we expand our horizons collectively and we create resources for people in our community. Uh, and we become the, the change makers. We become transformational, transformational agents, agents of change and, and, and models of hope and inspiration. So I just wanted to say what's up to all my boys and success stories. What's up, Richie? What's up, man? Yeah. What's up, Chris? Kiki, what's up, Chantal? What's up, Chris Johnson? What's up, Hugo Boss? Graham, my boy. I love all of you. I love you. I love you all. Yeah. Special shout out to Success Stories Program. You can find them, their program, who they are, what they do at successstoriesprogram.org. Is it .org or .com? Uh, .org. .org. And and what a blessing it is to have formerly incarcerated brothers out here giving back, being of service, going into those county jails, going to the prisons, Mm -hmm. providing a new message of hope. Uh, coming up against toxic masculinity and saying, our boy Roy is coming out. We need to raise some money. They did a fundraiser to raise some money to hire our friend and to help him make a livable wage so he'll get on his feet. I mean, there are a few things in this world uh, more beautiful than that when it comes to friendship. So shout out to Success Stories Program. Uh, Jay, you got a final word? The best is yet to come. Amen. Amen. Roy, one minute left. Um, what would you say to that mother or father who has a son, daughter going in with a life sentence and, um, and getting out? Uh, we are the creators of our own destiny. Um, I, I just have a really quick story. There was uh, this monk who, who came across a samurai and the samurai asked him, you monks are known for your wisdom. He goes, perhaps you can teach me the distinction between heaven and hell. The samurai's response was, rather, the monk's response to the samurai was, I wouldn't, exp- I wouldn't waste my time explaining such lofty things to you. I know you samurais to be ignorant, barbaric people. The samurai pulls his sword from his scabbard and begins to unleash his rage and fury onto the monk, and the monk silently, or calmly, rather, says, and that, my friend, is hell. Touched by the brilliance and insight of the monk, the samurai puts his sword back into his scabbard and says, thank you, my friend, for teaching me such wisdom today. And the monk responds, and that, my friend, is heaven. So I say that to say that we are the creators of our own heaven and hell in some way, the creators of our own hope and our own destiny. 
And if you can keep that optimistic perspective and stay founded and rooted in love and not give up hope, but continue to put one step in front of the other and continue to fight for truth, continue to fight for freedom, continue to fight for what you believe in, anything is possible. Profound. Thank you for being on the Prison Post, Roy. We love you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Prison Post, a production of the Crop Organization. We'll be sharing more stories from the world of prison reform and restorative justice, so please join us. You can listen to The Prison Post on all major podcasting platforms. Subscribe to our video cast on YouTube and like us on Facebook at The Prison Post and at Creating Restorative Opportunities and Programs.